Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS. Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more. Hey, everyone. A special note about this EMS Educator episode on ketamine. Rob and I want you to know that our good friend, Dr. Jeff Jarvis, has recorded an episode on the same topic for his podcast, The EMS Lighthouse Project. Jeff interviews Brent Myers and Remley Crow on all things research, data, and the nerd stuff we know you love. So for an excellent companion piece to the EMS Educator episode, head on over to your favorite podcast platform and have a listen to the EMS Lighthouse Project. Welcome to another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm Rob Lawrence, and I'd like to welcome my co-host, Hilary Gates. Thanks, Rob. I'm happy to be here. Director of Educational Strategy for Prodigy EMS. We're really, really pleased to be able to bring this podcast to anyone who's involved in EMS education. So we're going to talk about something that's probably a little bit of an emotive subject today in the news, in legislation, in medicine, and perhaps even in politics. We're going to talk about ketamine. And who better to talk about that than those that are in the centre of data? And I have to tell you both that data, of course, is my favourite four-letter word as well, right? So just so we know that. Dr. Brent Myers, uh, Medical Director for ESO, and also Remley Crow, fresh award winner. Congratulations from Eagles. Thank you so much. How does that feel? Was it a surprise? It was a big surprise. Because they set you up, didn't they? They totally set me up. They told me I would be presenting an award and instead I was the recipient. (laughs) Oh, surprise, surprise. So uh, if you haven't guessed already, this show is being recorded down at Eagles in Fort Lauderdale. It's the first time we've been down here with the Eagles in Fort Lauderdale. They are combining with the first there, first care conference. And I think it's been a roaring success. You've been here all week as we have, Remley. You've been into the creek. How's it gone so far, do you think? It's been really exciting. There's a lot of great work going on right now. Excellent. So let's kind of move on to the main event. And so you guys have, have got into the data. Ketterman, of course, we are aware of the, the politics. We're aware of the legislative efforts right now that's going on, particularly in Colorado. You guys then sought to answer the question and dig into the data and come up with the answer. So let's do bluff, bottom line up front. What's the answer? What did you, what did you assess and what's the answer? Dr. Myers. Yeah, sure. So thanks very much for the, for the question. We literally opened the database for 2019. And, and just as a way of background, we, we have a, what we refer to as the data collaborative at ESO. And the data collaborative allows people to voluntarily submit their de-identified data. So these are all data that have been voluntarily submitted by agencies. We never use any of the data that, that hasn't been, you know, uh, actually approved by any agency. We're fortunate in that year, there were over 12,000 administrations of ketamine in the United States during that time. To put that in perspective, however, there were over 5 million 911 responses. So the first myth that gets busted is that EMS is handing out ketamine left and right. You know, out of literally, I think it's 5.3 million-ish 911 responses, there were 12,000 unique patients that received ketamine. So that's that's part number one. Uh, but then the, the next part of this was simply to answer the overall ecological question. Why are we giving it? How much are we giving? What are the complications? And are people actually dying as a result? And the interesting part to us is we did this for ketamine because it's what's in the literature, but I'm, I hope our conversation leads us to every drug that we give should have a level of scrutiny. Certainly, there's a risk-benefit to everything. There's a risk-benefit to aspirin, right, for goodness sakes. And so we need to think about 
all of the drugs in that context. And I think hopefully that's where our discussion as a industry and as a specialty will lead is that I know ketamine's in the media now, but the real question that we can't answer from a database right now is the clinical notion of who should be sedated and why. That's the bigger question we can come back to. But, but to, to focus on ketamine, because to your point, that's what's in the media. The end of the day, we learned that EMS gives it more commonly for trauma and pain than for sedation. That the idea of giving a large dose is extraordinarily rare. Uh, that there are significant number of patients that experience hypoxia, that experience hypercapnia, and there are a very small number from which ketamine cannot be excluded as a cause of death. But ketamine's given to patients who at baseline are quite ill in a lot of cases, and I think that's an important thing to remember. Before Hillary asks the next question, I should just take us back a step and talk about, uh, Dr. Crow, your end number. Of course, the reason you're able to do all of this research is because you've got how many records to, to sift through? Well, we have about 2,000 different EMS agencies who are currently contributing data, and that equates to about 10 million annual records, of which about 8 million are 911 records. So you have the ability to uh, answer the question to, to a really fairly sophisticated degree. Right. And I think that's important you mentioned that. So yeah. we did a little bit of literature review on this before we dove into the data. Right. And we found a systematic review of all the pre-hospital ketamine literature. Collectively, there were less than 1,000 patients in those 10 papers. And so we were able to look at 11,000 patients in an annual data set. And I'm glad you said that because, of course, you're not just sort of pulling the first 10,000 or, or the first 100 no. and go, oh, stop there. So it's we important, calendar I think, we, year we establish that. Thank Absolutely. you. Excellent. And so why are we talking about this? I mean, why are we sitting here? Why did ketamine suddenly become such a controversy? And what is it about the drug that could possibly be dangerous that Brent referred to, but more importantly, how is it not dangerous and why are we using it and how has it come to be part of our EMS formulary? So I'll take the first stab at that and Rimley, please, you know, jump right in. But the, the reason it came to the forefront, if you will, is there were a couple of cases where there's question about every step of the care and those, those happen in the public environment. And I think that's one of the things that we as an EMS subspecialty have to acknowledge and not be frustrated by. Our specialty occurs in the public view by definition. And we've had internal discussions in many medical societies about the fact that if there's an unfortunate event in the hospital, the clinicians in that specialty on that floor may be aware, but the public by and large is not. And I'm not trying to pass a value judgment of whether that should or should not be. I'm just stating the fact that our specialty by definition happens in public. I think what we're seeing now is the ability of Everyone to have a camera, everyone to do that has amplified what has always been true, right? That our specialty practice is in public. So we have to be much more adept at our response to those types of issues. And I think that's one of the big lessons learned here is that there was a review process. There was all of the place, you know, the pieces in place around these cases, but those were not conducted necessarily in a way that the public could have confidence and see them ongoing, however they saw the issue up front in public. And so we've got to balance patient privacy and allow some public review of things that happen in public. And that's, that's a challenge. So as a consequence of that, then the, the focus became on a medication rather than on a procedure, if you will, which I think is the other piece of this is ketamine 
we like it. And to answer your question, we like it for lots of reasons. One of which is it does not drop blood pressure. And for patients that are undifferentiated in their agitation, the last we want to do is if they're agitated because they are hypoxic, if they're agitated for other, you don't want to compound that with hypotension. You don't want to compound that with respiratory depression. All sedatives cause respiratory depression. Ketamine seems to cause less than others. We'll see if that's true. The most likely reason that ketamine came to the fore is that it has a very rapid onset of action. So you can gain control of the situation and it requires much less repeat dosing. Uh, than any of the other sedatives that we see. So there's a pharmacological rational basis for why it has, it has come into the fore. And I think, you know, it, it, it became about a drug rather than a thought process and an intervention very quickly because of the way it was portrayed in public. And I think that this reminds me, if all of you listeners out there have an experience with the first time you had a behavioral health patient who was someone who needed to be restrained or was violent and we needed to gain control of the patient, we used to tie them to the cot. We used to bring the police officers in the back. We used to handcuff them to the stretcher. And I remember vividly the first time I had a patient like that getting to the hospital, that patient getting some pretty uh, big doses of Haldol and other uh, medications like that, but then learning later that not sedating the patient chemically and restraining them physically is actually more damaging and potentially deadly. Dr. Crow? Absolutely. And there's a good paper in one of the forensic journals on just that, looking at, well, what is you know, the alternative, what is the appropriate control group if we're looking at this from a research perspective? And it's not people who are not administered a medication necessarily because the fact that somebody was administered a medication probably means that they were having a more severe condition. And so we look at some of those other things, like you said, physical restraints, hard restraints, and we see that that is detrimental for a number of reasons. One is that it you can't necessarily continue your assessment as well as you could if the patient was able to be assessed. The other is you know, we need to facilitate the treatments. It's also hard to provide treatment sometimes when the patient is physically restrained. And then we have issues like asphyxia and depending on where the patient and how the patient is positioned. And so actually, oftentimes it's the right thing to do for the patient, the sedation, so that you can facilitate appropriate treatment, assessment, transport. We need to work on educating the public, clearly. And the public consists right now of some policymakers, and those are government entities such as city council, such as folks overseeing and funding EMS agencies. How do we do that? So I think the very first thing, is that we have to address this notion of excited delirium syndrome. And when you're in medicine, the word syndrome means you have a constellation of symptoms without an obvious explanation. And so the excited delirium syndrome has, has taken on this life of its own. And there's been two real issues that have come from that that we need to, to address, right? The first of those is that the syndrome that has been described by that phrase is exceedingly rare and is almost always associated with stimulant overdose, cocaine, methamphetamine, et cetera. And it, has a, it does have a constellation of symptoms as a syndrome would, not the least of which is profound hyperthermia. And so what we find is that a lot of patients who have what I refer to as simply undifferentiated agitation, which could be from hypoglycemia, it could be from a whole host of things, they still require sedation, but they don't have excited delirium syndrome. And so I think that term has been misused. And, and I, I predict actually, based on some papers that are in draft and things that we're, we're getting ready to do, that term is probably going to fall away simply because it has become so wrapped up in these other issues. So I think that's point one. 
Point two around that syndrome is that, and this for the educators out there, I think is very important. There has been this notion of, well, it's not there now, but it could be there any second. And so there is no such thing as a preventative sedation mechanism, right? So we should not be in, under any circumstance, whether it's ketamine or benzodiazepine or antipsychotic, worrying about what might happen in a few minutes and then giving a drug now, just like we shouldn't be worried about what the heart rhythm is going to be if it's normal sinus now and then, you know, giving lidocaine. I mean, it's the same kind of notion. So I think there's been this buildup around that, that concept. That being said, undifferentiated agitation is real. That happens. We encounter that all the time. And I think some of our in-hospital colleagues do not see it nearly as frequently because the patient has been evaluated and we have determined the cause and it's no longer undifferentiated agitation. We know, oh, they were hypoglycemic and we corrected it. They were hypoxic. We relieved their hypoxia, whatever the cause. But for EMS, when you're literally in the middle of the street, you don't have the luxury of running 10,000 tests and figuring out what the problem is. You need to make the patient safe, make yourself safe. And so sedation for undifferentiated agitation is a thing that we need to be ready to do. And I think that notion and giving people the notion that it's not all patients who are overdosed on cocaine, we're not proclaiming that's the case. There's a whole host of reasons, but we have to be able to evaluate the patient. I think you make a fair point that the hospital, you know, and it's something I've always held as a belief, that, you know, the hospital doesn't see the patient until at least 35 to 40 minutes into the emergency. And we're seeing them far sooner than that and therefore have to make some very quick decisions and have to take some very swift actions. And of course, we have to be confident in taking those. Can I just go back to the paper and the results for a second? Because in the session just now, and obviously in the paper, you talked about that ketamine could not be excluded in eight out of the 128 cases that you arrived at. So just sort of break that out for us and sort of work out, well, we've got eight. Oh dear, oh dear, is there a problem then? <laughs> Somebody could actually, again, if I'm writing an impactful headline, I can make merry with that. So explain those numbers. Well, before we dive into the numbers, and I will let Dr. Myers talk about exactly what they were, yeah. I think I want to highlight what you said about ketamine could not be excluded as a potential contributing sure. factor, because it was really important how we worded that. We didn't say that ketamine was a contributing factor. We just could not rule it out. And so Dr. Myers was actually one of the four physicians that overread every single narrative of the patient deaths that we had in that study and was able to classify as either, can we exclude ketamine definitively or not? And so would you like to share a little bit about but that? But actually, just give a, give a shout out to the primary author as well. I should definitely give yeah, a shout out to the primary that. author. Yeah. So yes, the primary author was Antonio Fernandez. Dr. Fernandez led the charge, not only in analysis, but I would say I assigned him the title of chief cat herder. There's a lot of personalities. Every on this paper, paper needs one, I can tell you. <laughs> oh, he did an amazing job and has the patience of a same I, incredible I, I, I work. I used to work with Dr. Renato. I've heard it a few, let me tell you. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, Dr. Myers. Anyway, the, the numbers. Yeah, sure. So the, the most important thing to, to note here is that we base this on all the information that we have available. But our commitment to those that participate in the collaborative is that their data are de-identified more than just personal health information. That's, of course, de-identified. We also de-identify it by agency and state. So as a consequence, it is not as though we could take those 128 deaths and then go ask for additional information because we don't know who they are, right, by definition. What that leads to is as we review the cases, the first pass review was all narratives were read for all hundred and technically 129, but in one of those narratives, it was clear ketamine wasn't administered. So we kicked that one out. So 128 total narratives were overread by the four physicians independently. And 
ranked about whether we thought you could easily exclude ketamine, obviously, by what was in the narrative. Things like massive trauma, airway management, uh, you know, pre-existing hypotension, all of the things that, that you would think. And so those, we excluded a, a good number on that first pass, and it had to be unanimous. So once there were those that were left, we then went in and found everything that we had in our database about them how long they were in the hospital, if there was an ICD-10 code that, that may have described what their cause of death was, what their vital signs were, et cetera. And went back and then did the exact same process with those. Four independent reviews, came back together, had another meeting. And so at the end of all of that, there were eight cases where we could not exclude ketamine. And I'll give you some examples. And these are actually described. The six in-hospital deaths are in detail in a table in the paper, and the two out-of-hospital deaths are in the narrative section and pretty well detailed. But just to give you some examples of how these worked. So one was a female in her 50s. Um, neighbors called, the best we could tell from the narrative, after hearing noise in her home. She was home alone. She had what appeared to be self-inflicted wounds in her arm, although obviously there's no way to know for sure. She was calm, mostly on EMS arrival. They were able to detect a pulse. She was asking and answering questions. When they tried to move her to the ambulance, she became incredibly combative. She had 250 of ketamine IM and subsequently suffered a cardiac arrest and was not resuscitated. The neighbors very clearly stated that she used methamphetamine frequently and that they thought that's what this was, but there were no documented paraphernalia. There was no, so we could not, based on what was in, uh, available to us, definitely exclude ketamine. 250 milligrams IM is a pretty low dose. Another one we could not exclude had a conflict about whether the ketamine was administered IV versus IM in the narrative versus in the chart, you know, in the flow chart of the, of the record. And it was four milligrams per kilogram. Well, four milligrams per kilogram IM probably wouldn't be a problem. Four milligrams per kilogram IV could be. A, so we were very conservative. If it was not obvious to us that ketamine could be excluded, we did not exclude it from the. So that gives you a flavor of where those come from. If you ask for my non-scientific physician gestalt about whether ketamine contributed to those deaths, it was far fewer than eight. But what the facts available to us, we wanted to be very, I guess, regimented is the word. We want to be reproducible with our results. So we didn't want there to be any gestalt or anything else. It was straight down the line. So even if it was eight, that's 0.07% of all patients that received the drug. But I think the number is actually less than that. And hopefully once fully published, of course, it's going to be something that we can lean on as we're going, taking it back to out of the medicine into the politics. We can actually lean on this and use it to educate, which is, of course, why we're here. And let's get to that, because we've got um, a number of very expert and well-regarded groups of folks weighing in on this issue. I heard someone say recently that EMS and pre-hospital is really the only place uh, likely that we're going to see a case like this that might need sedation with ketamine. Probably not going to be seen elsewhere. So why do we have other groups weighing in on this problem and making statements when it may not be their wheelhouse? And how do you guys respond to that in terms of saying whose responsibility is this and who owns this uh what's become political issue. So I'll, I'll weigh in on that first. So the, the first thing is we are a relatively new specialty in the House of Medicine. 2010 was the first EMS physician board exam, first board certified EMS physicians. By the way, we are now the largest subspecialty in emergency medicine. So it has moved very quickly, but it's a relatively young subspecialty. So I think that's part one. Part two, as we discussed earlier, this occurs in public. The public does have an interest. And if you think about it, um, we are unique 
because there's not a 911 and an 811 and a 711. If, if I hear about something going on at a particular hospital or with a particular physician or physician group, I can choose to go to another physician if that's what I want to do. I cannot choose another 911 number. So we do have a higher level of public scrutiny that we should just anticipate. That being said, I do think that the role of the EMS medical director has been underappreciated in that you really do make a decision for all the people within your care about what they're going to receive or not receive based on the best evidence analysis you can do. There may be state protocols that guide, there may be other institutions, but at the end of the day, that local EMS medical director is in charge of that. Maybe go through committee, but you, you get the point. So I think the number one answer here is a better education about how the EMS system works. Uh, so many of these statements have either insinuated or outright stated that law enforcement was administering ketamine, which demonstrates a complete misunderstanding of how the system works. We need to make sure that the public understands that this is a medical issue and that it is a EMS clinician making the decision based on the guidance of their medical director. It's been said in the Eagles Hall and, and in Eagle Creek, of course, that we've got to actually take law enforcement out of this. This is not the cop nudging you saying, hey, give him an extra one for me. This is a clinical decision based on what the medic arrives on scene, sizes up the scene, assesses what's going on and makes a decision just because he's his buddy or his mate, depending on which country you're listening from, is a, a police officer or a copper. We need to remove the police from this because actually it perhaps muddies the water in terms of laying out the clinical case for this. Yeah, I, I agree with one caveat, which is we teach every clinician where they're in the hospital or out of the hospital, one of the most appropriate things you can do is gather as much information as you can about a patient. When I was still practicing clinical and had residents rotating with me, I would say to them, 85% of everything you do can be diagnosed by history alone. 10% by physical diagnosis and 5% by lab and you know, radiology, et cetera. And so to do that, you have to take the history from everybody around. So one of the things that worries me, and I think the language was softened, I still haven't seen the final final of the Colorado bill, but there was this notion in there that would almost chill the relationship so that if law enforcement actually had pertinent information to share with the medic, they would be afraid to even say, hey, before you got here, there was a two-minute seizure or there were things that, that you know, to, to complete that clinical picture. I agree. We need to make it very clear that the decision is a clinical one by the medic, but a responsible clinical decision includes taking all of the history that's available to you, particularly those that were there before you arrived that may be able to tell you something that you personally couldn't see can't be colored by it. You can't have your judgment clouded. I get that. I, I worry that some of the language is making it so that we're not even speaking to people on the scene. And I absolutely agree with you. And, but, you know, I don't want us to get into the scenario where my body cam is watching your body cam watching my body cam. <laughs> we can't say right. anything else, you know? No, right. right. And we could, right. we, we could be there very soon. That's a house of mirrors right there. There we go. Big Brother is watching. No, but but it, it's, it's something that we have to... And, and, of course, there was a comment made here as well that, you know, the medical director should take time to spend some time with either the police chief or, indeed, the clinical operations guys should go to roll call to kind of, you know, establish that rapport, that liaison, and actually talk about the realities of arriving on scene and having to treat a patient like this and you know familiarity does help well yeah and I, i've heard a good phrase and i'm sure you've heard it as well is that you don't want to be handing out your card on game day yes and so i think it is important to maintain right. those relationships and role definitions and how we're going to communicate and rob's been the pio who had to hand out a card but i bet it was never on game day because he knows from experience the importance of prepping for that actual event and you're all all going to get caught 
at some point. Well, this conversation has conjured up so many times where I've had to go out and face the camera. Um, but the good news is I knew the reporters and, of course, I knew the police chief and everybody else. And there's always that kind of, you know, you've got to put the work in first uh, in order to make the game day or the battle day uh, that much easier. But, uh, of course, coming back to one of the points you made, you know, the news cycle is now immediate. Uh, people have a Facebook or they have, you know, somewhere recording it. You, We, of course, have to abide by the laws of HIPAA, so we have no right to reply immediately other than we are looking into it, we are investigating, we will get back to you. Well, that's five news cycles down the line and they've found a resident expert they've found a subject matter expert they've found all sorts of people and so there's a lot of recovery to be done because as you quite rightly say there's no education up front for the case right and i think the other the other thing from an education perspective and meeting with your police chief and others up front is this notion of this dual response model that the ama recently coined the phrase and and it has a negative connotation, I think, in the way it's in their policy, but I don't find it negative at all. I think we should embrace the fact that we respond with our law enforcement and firefighter and all of the other public safety and public health colleagues that co-respond with us, mental health professionals, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is, in most communities in the United States, and probably worldwide, but certainly in the United States, the most available, rapid responding public safety entity is the law enforcement entity. They can be there the fastest. And so if we think about successful communities, I mean, the white papers from years and years ago when that first AED was put in the back of a patrol car to now where Narcan administration, tourniquet administration, CPR, AEDs, and you put those on the first arriving, this dual response saves lives every day. Cases that we hear about, about pediatric patients that received CPR from law enforcement. Well, that dual response model was probably very much appreciated by that family, parents, and that entire community. So I think this notion that the dual response model is somehow negative, we, we've got to get past that. I have to give a shout out to my old guys in Richmond that when they had the Valor Awards every year, the award for pulling people out of burning buildings didn't go to firefighters. Sorry, firefighters. It went to police officers. Let's wrap this topic. I think if we can really make ketamine feel like the safe drug that it is and highlight the best practices for ketamine, not just in sedation, but in pain control in, and in other categories. Dr. Crow, what would you say to the EMS educator, to the medical director, to the new medic who's learning about this that can reassure them that this is the right medication to have in our formulary? I'll answer that question first, and then I want to add one. I think one thing that I do want to emphasize is, yes, ketamine's safe, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to be vigilant. We definitely need to be using ETCO2 because if we're waiting for the pulse ox to go down, we are looking in the rear view. And it's really important that we catch any hypoventilation early and that we can correct it. The question I want to back up to is another message that is, Brent said this earlier, it's any medication we should be thinking about. And a couple of things that we've kind of touched on, but we haven't outright said, so I want to make sure that we say it, is how important documentation is, how important it is that we're learning to document and document well. A lot of the uncertainties where we could not exclude ketamine as a potential contributing factor was the documentation was conflicting or it wasn't there. And so we can't underestimate the value of EMS data enough. And it really was, we brought the data to the conversation. We brought the data to Colorado and testified and that really shifted the conversation because in the absence of data, the anecdote wins. And we, we understand there's real people behind these numbers, and that is something that we always want to keep in mind. But we need to take these high-level looks at just, let's take a step back. What does practice actually look like? Do we have a sentinel event on our hands, or do we have a true problem that we need to use our improvement science methods for? 
And there has to be kudos given to this team and any researcher out there who is actually taking the time and the energy to look at this data and tell the truth about what's going on rather than the anecdote. So thank you for that, Drs. Crow and Myers. This is great. So that's been another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. No matter what platform you're listening to us on, please take a moment to give us a rating to push us up the charts so more people get a chance to hear us. Thank you very much indeed for your time and hopefully I will see you again soon.